Mark 7, 1 says this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when, they come, and when they come into the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with, un with defiled hands? But eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not in his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and they defile a person please pray with me father what a passage of scripture that jesus would so clearly call our hearts evil for you lord this is not something that we can make up but it has to be the truth from you, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have humble hearts, that we would accept what, Lord, your truth says. And that, Father, you give us hope, hope that you indeed, for those who have believed in you, have been given new hearts, new hearts that long, Lord, to obey you, that long to be cleansed. Teach us, Father, to not trust in human wisdom, but in your perfect power, the blood of your Son. I thank you so much, Father, for every person here. I pray that you would help me to preach, Lord, as this text deserves. You help them to hear and to, Lord, apply. You help all of us, Lord, to behold the beauty and the wonder of our glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his perfect name we pray. Amen. If you've ever had a garden, you know the harsh reality. You put in tons of effort to get your tomato plants to grow, 
and yet they can easily yield no fruit. At the same time, you put in zero effort to make the weeds grow. And yet for some reason, they always grow like, well, weeds. Have you ever wondered why that is? Like, why don't beautiful roses just sprout of the ground like they're weeds? Why don't strong and mighty oak trees just pop up overnight? Or to maybe generalize a little bit beyond gardening, why is the beautiful so rare? Why is the good so hard to achieve? Why does the worthwhile always take so much work? We could turn and ask the same question about ourselves. Why is it so hard to be good? I mean, why is it so rare that we respond like Christ wants us to? When our brother borrows something, borrows without asking. When our teachers are unfair or when our parents nag us to death, why don't we say, you know, God, thank you so much for this opportunity to love them just like you've loved me. Hey, little brother, you know, please go enjoy that toy even if you didn't ask for it. Mr. Young, thanks for being my teacher. I really appreciate you. Mom and dad, I will happily obey you all the time. I mean, no one responds that way, not naturally, right? Kindness, love, thanksgiving, obedience are hard, really hard. But anger and bitterness and pride, those are like easy. You don't have to think about that. It just comes out. So now we have this tension, right? It's easy to be bad, but most of us don't really want to see ourselves that way, right? I don't want to be seen that way. But on the other hand, it's really hard to be good. So what do we do? Well, sometimes we just pretend like we're good. For example, instead of being a truly loving person, we just act like a nice person on the outside. We use nice words, we put on a nice smile, we practice nice manners, we say, please, thank you, you're welcome. We open the door for people, right? But inwardly, we can actually be angry and judgmental. Our inside doesn't match our outside. Or instead of being, instead of doing the hard work of loving a fellow sinner, of, of crying with them, of comforting them with scripture, of even serving them directly, we say stuff like, oh, I'll be praying for you. But we don't really mean it because we don't really care if we're honest. We just say something that sounds just spiritual enough so that we look good on the outside, but inside our heart is not really into it. Or instead of loving our friends and sharing the gospel with them, we tolerate their sin. Oh, sure, we might not be as bad as they are. We don't do exactly the same things, things that they do, but inwardly, we kind of want to, at least a little. We're just afraid of getting caught, or even worse, we judge them, we look down upon them as if they're worse human beings than we are. So often we act good without truly being good. I fight this every single day. I don't want to live a lie, right? I want to be, I want to be real. I want to be the same exact person at all times, whether at church with my pastors or at home with my cousin and his family, at youth group with you all or alone with God. I try and I often fail. What about you? Are you the same person, whether at church, at school or at home? Or do you kind of act a certain way, depending on what you think people might want you to be? Tonight, we're gonna to look at a lot of people, excuse me, we're, tonight we're gonna to talk about a people that were experts in acting good without truly being good. Experts at looking good in front of others, lying by their deeds. Experts at dead, false religion. These are the scribes and the Pharisees. The last time I heard about this group was back in Mark chapter two. If you don't remember, don't worry, that was six months ago. So long time ago. Um, I'll refer to this group as just the Pharisees for simplicity. And to refresh your memory, here's some brief facts about them. 
Number one, the Pharisees were the Bible teachers of the day. Number two, the Pharisees added their rules on top of God's laws. Number three, the Pharisees were self-righteous. That means they thought themselves as better than everyone else because they obeyed their man-made rules. Number four, the Pharisees were obsessed with externals rather than internal. That means they're concerned about looking good rather than being good. And thus, the Pharisees were hypocrites. That means they're pretenders, they're actors, they're fakers. They're not the real deal. In our passage, Jesus takes the sword of the word of God and he exposes the hypocrisy of their religion. He shows that despite them looking clean on the outside, they're actually wicked and dirty on the inside. But as Jesus exposes their bad heart, he also exposes our own, our own hearts. And in fact, if we understand this passage rightly, we'll see that we're much more similar to the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. The key idea for today is that only Jesus, not dead religion, can address our real problem, our sinful hearts. Only Jesus, not dead religion, can address our real problem, our sinful hearts. Point one is the heart of a Pharisee. This passage is a really deep dive into the heart of a Pharisee. When I say heart, I'm using a biblical metaphor, which means the very core of who you are. It means your thoughts, your desires, your will, I mean, okay, the things you want, right? Your heart is who you really are on the inside. In verse three and four of our passage, Mark gives us a quick background of the Pharisees' obsession with washing, right? Before eating, they must wash, not only their hands, but their cups and pots and pans too. Now, this wasn't to get rid of germs, like we might wash stuff, right? They're obsessed about washing because they didn't want to be spiritually unclean. So here's the logic, okay? Let's say if I touch something spiritually dirty, say a jar that a non-Jew touched, uh, the Jews didn't, didn't like the non-Jews. If I touch the jar that a non-Jew touched, then my hands are spiritually dirty, right? If then I touch my food with those spiritually dirty hands, then the food becomes spiritually dirty. If then I eat that food and it goes in my body, then my whole body is spiritually dirty. So to prevent that, I have to take a spiritual bath. And that means just using normal water. Sometimes it uses a handful of water. Sometimes it required a whole bath. This cleansing, these cleansing rituals reveal a couple of things about the Pharisees. First, they reveal that the Pharisees thought defilement or uncleanliness, spiritual uncleanness came from outside of themselves. They thought that spiritual uncleanness came from outside of themselves. Secondly, it reveals that the Pharisees thought they were inherently clean, aka already clean. To put it another way, more simply, they thought the problem was not themselves, but outside of themselves. Not inside themselves, but outside of themselves. I mean, try to understand where the Pharisees are coming from. Let's say your siblings are like human tornadoes, right? And they make a mess wherever they go. And so, you know, like after you clean up your room, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want my siblings coming in after soccer practice because they're just gonna mess it all up. They're gonna touch all these things and get mud everywhere, right? So it makes sense. I keep the, the uncleanness outside of the cleanness, right? But the question is, is the human soul really a clean room to start with? Look at verse two. Jesus and his disciples were not washing their hands before eating. And the Pharisees assumed that meant Jesus and his disciples were unclean. In verse five, they asked a question. Why do your disciples eat with defiled hands? Now, it's technically a question, but it's not really a question. The Pharisees were implying that Jesus' followers, and therefore Jesus, were spiritually dirty. Sinners 
for not washing their hands. And that invites Jesus to answer. Point two, the hypocrisy of dead religion. And he, Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah, and it's a scalding rebuke of a previous generation of Jews. God says of these people, they used all the right words. They had all the right prayer requests. They did all the right things, but they did not love God. They sang the right songs. They offered the same sacrifices. They memorized the right verses, but they did not love God. They invented all kinds of rules out of reverence for the law. They held to an even, an even stricter standard than the Bible, and yet they did not love God. They said they're close to God, but they're actually far from him. They worship God with their lips. They said the, the right songs, the right song lyrics, but it was worthless because they did not love God. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're just like these Jews. You're hypocrites. And when we hear that, we should really be shocked, right? Now, understand, these are the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the religious center of Judaism. So it's basically the best of the best. He's saying, you're all hypocrites. Your religion is worthless. Now, think about how serious they were for a second with me, right? They wore these long special robes that marked them out as holy people. They strapped something called phylacteries. Phylacteries are these small little boxes with slips of paper on them, with slips of paper. And on the slips of paper were scripture verses, right? And they literally tied them to their foreheads like this. Why? Because they wanted to keep the word of God always on their mind. They prayed long, fancy prayers in public. They were the missionaries, the synagogue teachers, the Bible professors, the experts in the Old Testament, masters in religious tradition. No one dedicated themselves to religion like the Pharisees did. And yet Jesus says about the religion one thing, hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite is not originally a negative word. It was actually used to refer to actors in Greek theater who wore different masks to signify their role. You know, like, okay, I'm like wearing a man mask, I'm a man, wearing like a dog mask, now I'm a dog, right? It's just, it's just a normal kind of like act, it means actor. However, over time, as we use it today, hypocrite came to mean a pretender, faker, fraud. I mean, feel the bite of that word. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, all your prayers, your religious deeds, your giving, your service, it's a sham. What are you, in a theater? You're pretenders, you're phonies, you're fakes. You live as if life is a show. You're so obsessed with your traditions and looking good on the outside that you entirely miss the point of true religion. A new heart transformed by the power of God. You are hypocrites. Now think of me, think with me of an imaginary middle schooler. Let's say he doesn't get into fights at school. He doesn't cheat on his tests. He doesn't cause too much trouble at home. He knows some Bible stories, he serves in VBS, he reads some you know, Bible verses occasionally, and even remembers to pray before his meals. But he does not love God. God is not his father, Christ is not a savior, the spirit is not his strength. Is this churchgoer a Christian? No, right, he's not. Why, because doing Christian things doesn't make someone a Christian. I mean, think about it this way. If I took a squirrel and I duct, and I duct tape some wings to it, does that make it an eagle, a real eagle? No. If I put on a princess costume, does that make me a real princess? No. If I slap a Bible verse on my arm and I wear a Christian t-shirt, 
Does that make me a real Christian? No, not at all, right? The merely external, the outside, can't transform the heart, who you really are. Being part of youth group, knowing something about the Bible, talking about Jesus, if these things only affect the outside, they don't really change you. But the Pharisees are playing dress up. They're putting on the hat and the robe of religion and pretending that it made them truly the people of God. The worst part of all is that they fooled themselves and even fooled others into believing the lie. The lie that if you look good on the outside, it means you're good on the inside. But Jesus has a totally different perspective. And he says that the Pharisees have two fundamental problems. Their first problem is their tradition. They're obsessed with man-made rules. And second, the second problem was their superficiality. They're obsessed with unimportant external things. So first their tradition and then their superficiality. First, let's talk about tradition. Tradition over obedience. Jesus introduces the problem in verse eight. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. So remember those two categories, right? Commandment of God and tradition of men. Now our church, Lighthouse, has lots of traditions. We have PBS, Holy Union Night, Christmas Eve service, etc. There's no verse in the Bible about these events, but we've done them for a while. And so we can rightly call them traditions. Now, what happens if these traditions were to conflict with the Bible? For example, let's say we had insisted on doing our yearly in-person youth retreat during COVID, just like we had always done instead of obeying the government as Romans 13, one, two commands us. Something would be off, right? We'd be exalting our tradition over what God's word says. The Pharisees were exalting the traditions as more important than the word of God. When their traditions contradicted the word of God, they didn't stop practicing their traditions. They stopped obeying the word of God. Jesus gives one tragic example in the fifth commandment. Then you might, you might know the fifth commandment. You might've memorized it. The fifth commandment is the favorite commandment of all parents. Honor your father and mother for this is right. <laughs> right. Okay. So the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It's a command for younger children to obey their parents, but it's also a command to older children, adult children, to take care of and respect their parents. You might have seen like your parents taking care of your grandparents. That's part of the way that they obey the fifth commandment. It's a clear command in scripture given to Israel at the very founding of their nation. Jesus upholds this commandment. The Pharisees do not. Verse 11, Jesus says, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Korban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Now, let me explain this Korban thing because it's, it's pretty, it's just it's not what we do today. So it's, it's kind of foreign. Right? Let's say a Jewish man wanted to donate all his life savings to the work of God, say missions or the building of a new synagogue. According to the Korban tradition, he could do so by saying his money was Korban, means given, given to God but he actually wouldn't give the money yet. Instead, it was more like putting a sticky note on his money and saying, here, this is now for God, okay? Apparently he kept the money until he died. And before then he had some control over what he would actually do with it. So someone wants to be generous with money, that's great. That, that's absolutely cool, right? If you have that tradition, go for it. But let's keep going. Now imagine these parents, these man's parents got sick and they didn't have enough money to buy the medicine that they needed to get better or to stay alive. Remember, in those days, there's no government help, no retirement savings. Sons were the only ones who could take care of their aging parents. The only ones. The fifth commandment commands that the son take care of his parents. 
And most practically in this situation, it means buy the medicine, right? You have the money, buy the medicine for your parents. Pretty simple. But enter the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, oh, your money's korban. You can't use it for anything else other than God. And that means you cannot take care of your parents. Sorry. Now, think with me. That's wicked. That means the parents would suffer and maybe even die because of the Pharisees' tradition. They were using this tradition to rob older parents of the care they needed, all in the name of being spiritual and giving money to God. How would you like it? Like it? If your dad said, oh, I'm sorry, honey, uh, we can't buy you any more food because I promised to give all my money to the church when I die. You'd be mad, right? And really hungry. Um, Jesus' anger makes sense now, doesn't it? The Pharisees are play-acting at religion and teaching us to do the same, all the while robbing the elderly of the care that God demands they receive. Jesus condemns them in verse 13. He says, thus making void, that means empty, the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Meaning not only the Korban tradition, but many other ways they contradicted the Bible. Now, here's some food for thought. Can you tell the difference between a command from God and a tradition from men? Let's do a quick quiz, okay? Are small groups a command from God or a tradition from men? Just think about it in your head. Are small groups a command from God or a tradition from men? What about youth group or children's ministry? What about Christmas in December or Easter in the spring? What about reading the Bible every day or taking notes during sermons or even preaching through entire books of the Bible passage by passage? Are these commands from God or are they traditions from men? All of them are traditions. You can't find a verse in the Bible commanding the church to do all these things. Right? After all, Jesus never celebrated Christmas in December, never had youth group, never read the Bible every morning, or didn't preach verse by verse. Neither did the apostles. Now, being a tradition is not necessarily a bad thing. I personally like all these traditions. Maybe, yeah, I really like them. And I think I find them very helpful. They're good because they help us to love God and obey particular commands in scripture. But I think we're in the danger of loving our traditions more than we actually love obeying God, especially if we practice those traditions without thinking about why we actually do them. Right? I mean, have you ever thought about it? Why do I go to church and go to youth group and read the Bible and pray and give and serve? And why do I do those things? Is it because just what good Christians kids do? Or is it just because your family's always done that? Or is it just because you don't know what else you do during those times? If so, you're in danger of thinking and acting like a Pharisee, holding fast to man-made traditions without thinking about how it actually relates to loving God. Just like them, we can go through the motions of worship and religion without even worshiping God. It's busyness without Christ. That's less than biblical Christianity. Christ has more for us than just doing things for him without really loving or worshiping him. But how are we going to get back from really that empty religion to our first love, a love for Christ? By our second point, Jesus shows us by bringing us from tradition to the heart of the matter. Superficiality over the heart. Right? Now, superficiality is a really, really big word. I couldn't think of another word, so I'm sorry. Um, superficiality superficiality means to be obsessed with the outside while ignoring the inside, which is really kind of ridiculous. I mean, who would ever want to eat a scoop of mud 
dipped in chocolate? No one, right? It matters what's inside just as well as what is outside. Jesus says in verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jump down to verse 18 with me. And he said to them, this is his disciples now. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Remember the Pharisees were obsessed with being spiritually clean, washing their hands, washing their cups and pots and pans. Here, Jesus completely blows them out of the water. He says, eating with unwashed hands doesn't make you unclean. Your food goes in your mouth, then into your belly, and then to the toilet. It doesn't touch your heart at all. It can't make you spiritually dirty because it does not affect your heart. In other words, it's not what's outside, what's outside that changes you. It's inside what defines you. Look at verse 20 with me. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Or you Pharisees, it's not your hands or your pots and pans that makes you dirty. It's you. Bad influences, bad environment, bad teaching, bad parents, bad genes. They are bad. But they're not fundamentally what makes someone a bad person. Jesus says that what comes out of a person's heart defiles him. And what comes out of a heart? Evil thoughts, lust, theft, murder, jealousy, lies, selfishness, gossip, arrogance, folly, and more. He turns the Pharisees' assumptions on their head and says, you're not defiled because you ate some dirty food. You're defiled because of who you are. If the Pharisees really understood the law, they would not have obsessed about ritual washings. Instead, they would have said, I'm unclean because of what's inside of me, at the core of who I am, of a fountain of death, everyday vomiting forth lawlessness and sin. The pollution is inside. Those things don't make me unclean. Everything I touch, I make unclean because I am unclean. Help me, God. Have mercy on me, the sinner. If we really understood the Bible, we wouldn't exalt the external things over the internal. Instead, we think about what makes us truly unclean. Our heart. And think about that. That means my biggest problem in the whole wide world is me. Your biggest problem is you. The root cause of your anger with your siblings is not your siblings. The root cause of your lust is not who or what you look at. The root cause of your jealousy is not your lack of whatever that thing you want is. The root cause of your pride is not your skills. The root cause of your laziness is not TV, not video games, not social media, not your phone. The root cause, the root problem of your sin is you. The root cause of my sin is me. That hurts a bit, doesn't it? But isn't that exactly what this text says? Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The sword of the word of God cuts down our pride and makes us silent. It shuts down our blame shifting and points the finger straight at us. We are our own worst enemy. We all ought to say we are the worst of sinners. Our sin comes from our heart, the very core of who we are. And it makes everything dirty. 
One counselor gives this illustration. Imagine here I have a, a cup of sewer water. It's not real sewer water, but let's say I have a cup of sewer water, right? No cap. And I ask you, if I shake the cup, what will happen? Well, obviously, Keith, you say, the sewer water will get all over the place. Okay, good. Next question. Why did the sewer water get all over the place? Now, one answer would be, because you shook the cup, obviously, right? But perhaps a deeper question, a deeper answer is, because the cup was filled with sewer water. There are many things that shake us up. Our siblings annoy us, our parents nag us, our teachers are unfair, our friends are bad influences. Our day doesn't go the way we want. I mean, surely those things are definitely part of the picture. I'm not saying they're not important, but that's not the root cause of our sin. If our heart was filled with righteousness instead of sinfulness, when we're shaken up, sin wouldn't get over the place, right? Instead, kindness would get over the place. Patience, love, compassion, truth. Those are the things that would come forth from our hearts. That's what Jesus poured out from his heart when others sinned against him. Under the worst of circumstances, he shined bright. Now, to sum all of this up and put it really bluntly, no one makes you sin, so stop blaming them. If you sin, if you sin, take it as undeniable evidence that sin lives in you. We lie because we're liars. We hate because we're murderers. We steal because we're thieves. We're foolish because we're fools. We sin because we're sinners. Now, if you don't believe me, I have just a small challenge for you, um, and it's not too bad. The challenge is stop sinning, okay? Just stop sinning. Oh, sorry, too hard. Um, just stop sinning for just a week, all right? Starting now until next youth group, just stop sinning. If, it's, if your heart is really that good, just stop. Um, just avoid, you know, all the situations people make you sin. It should be pretty easy. Um, but remember, to not sin, it also means that you must obey every one of your parents' commands with joy and thankfulness in your heart, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. That means you should consider your siblings more important than yourself and be willing even to die for them as Christ has died for you. That's Philippians 2, verse 3 to 5. You also should respect your teachers and give them honor as they deserve, Romans 13, 7. You must do all things without grumbling or fighting, uh, Philippians 2, 14. You must bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. You must rejoice always, pray without ceasing, that's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. You should not fear men or their opinion. And instead, fear God and worship him. That's Proverbs 29, 25. And to cap it all off, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, armor, and strength every moment of every day. You must love all people just as much as you love yourself. That's Mark 12, 30 to 31. Of course, it's an impossible challenge, right? First John 1, 9 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Don't lie to yourself. You're a sinner in your very heart. But also don't despair. The very next verse, 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 9, says this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're a Christian, God has said, Jesus has said that you are righteous, declared you righteous. That doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. It means that your defilement has been covered by Jesus' perfect righteousness, that God sees you as if you had lived the perfect life that Jesus actually lived. Before God, you're not condemned for your sin. You're actually free to live for him. The theological word for this is justification. Justification. God says that we are righteous 
because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you're now fundamentally different. You used to hate God and love sin. But now as a Christian, you love God and you hate sin. Yet as a Christian, you must also continually have Jesus wash you clean. That's what this verse says, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when you sin, and you will sin, you must confess it to God. That means you tell him about your sin honestly. Not blame shifting, not making mistakes, but saying, it's here, Lord. It's in my heart. Remember, God is our father. He loves us. He's the gardener of our hearts. He's pulling out the weeds and thorns of sin. He's sowing truth and watering with grace, patiently making us grow. He is continually cleansing your heart, even though he's already declared you to be clean in Christ. The theological word for this, this process, is sanctification. That means over time, God makes you more and more like his son, holy. God is committed to your growth as a Christian. Man-made traditions can't cleanse you. Your human efforts can't cleanse you. But his power, God's power, by his faithfulness and justice, that can cleanse us down even to the very depths of our heart. So if you believe in the Son of God, believe that he's washed away your sin. If you believe in the Son of God, believe that he has made you whole. You're no longer a pretender and hypocrite because he's given you a new heart. Not a perfect one yet, but a new one that truly loves him. The spirit of God is making you good on the inside, dealing with the root problem of all your sin. So you'd be good on the outside too. Don't worry. No one is perfect. Not Jesus. And so accept Jesus until we get to glory. So you're in good company. So fellow Christians, trust in Christ. Stop trying to cleanse yourself by man-made traditions and superficial self-effort. Stop worrying that not reading enough Bible or not taking good enough sermon notes or not knowing the right answer to some theological question will make you unclean or lesser. Your real problem is your heart, and it is full of sin. But if you have believed in Christ, he continually washes you clean. We've seen the religion of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of dead religion and man-made tradition and superficiality. And then it cannot cleanse our heart. But Jesus can. And Jesus does. Pray with me. Our Father, you promised us that you would give us new hearts. That you write upon our hearts that live. Your law that would love you. That we would be your people and that you would be our God. That finally, Lord, on that last day that no one will ever try to say, let me teach you about who God is because everyone will know you, Lord. Everyone will love you. Everyone will praise you. Bring us, Lord, from this day to that day. Help us to, Lord, have hope even when we're discouraged and angry and frustrated with our own sinfulness, Lord. But teach us, Lord, to hope in you, that you are the gardener of our soul, that you are the savior of our soul. And that you will continue, Lord, to bring us all the way home. You have sworn it, Lord, and you will complete it. I thank you so much, for, Lord, for everyone here. I pray you help us to see our great Savior, that he is the only power that washes away sin. We thank you for his death and his resurrection. It's in his perfect name we pray. Amen.